You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Bobby Rebel, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. With the birth of my children in 2004 and 2007, I became aware of two terrifying yet mutually conflicting fears. One was the realization that one day my children would grow up and leave me. The other was that they just might never actually leave. The latter fear, captured in the 2006 romantic comedy Failure to Launch, makes this blockbuster movie still relevant today. Trip, played by Matthew McConaughey, is a 35-year-old who still lives at home and shows no signs of wanting to leave. In desperation, his parents hire Paula, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, to get him to move out. Let's take a listen to their initial consultation. So all systems are go. Based on the initial personality assessment, I think that I can have your son moved out of this house and living on his own by June 15th. <laughs> Hallelujah! Well, you know, you'd be amazed at how many adult children are still living at home. Now, it's my opinion that the root cause is a lack of self-esteem. Oh, Oprah talks about that all the time. Oprah don't know crap. Heck, when I was growing up, nobody had self-esteem, and we turned out fine. You're a rock, Al. You make me a better woman. Look, many young men who should be able to move out simply can't. It's called failure to launch, and that's where I come in. Is there anything that we need to do? Well, for starters, you could make life a little more difficult for them. You know, uh, more chores, more responsibilities, that kind of thing. I just think you should know that... Trip has had some rough breaks. I promise you, when this is over, Trip is going to be an independent, self-sufficient adult. Helping our children navigate the path to adulthood is the expertise of our guest today. To do so, she says, we need not only help them build self-esteem, but also teach them to become financial grown-ups. Are you looking to elevate your asset allocation? Guard your portfolio against volatility? Equity Multiple can help. Invest in professionally managed commercial real estate starting with just $5,000. Establish passive income streams while experienced asset managers go to work on your behalf. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investment. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Bobby Rebell is the author of Launching Financial Grownups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adult Kids Become Everyday Money Smart. She is the host of the Money Tips for Financial Grownups podcast and the founder of GrownUpGear.com. Bobby was previously a global business news anchor and personal finance columnist at Reuters and held various journalist positions at top news outlets, including CNBC, CNN, and PBS. 
Bobby Rebell, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Tell us about Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. Why is it one of the happiest days of your life? Oh boy, it was a really big day because we signed a lot of very complicated paperwork that made our daughter the owner of her first home. And it was a big moment for my husband and I, because not only was she moving out, but she was moving out in a way that she was so excited about that she had a lot of confidence in herself. And it marked a huge accomplishment of a goal that she had had her goal, not our goal, her goal, which was to be a homeowner. She had had that goal since she was 13 years old. And I mean, I'm going to cry just, just doing this interview. We just started. <laughs> but I mean, I walked around this apartment before the closing and she was buying it. And, you know, it sounds so intimidating buying a New York City co-op. But the truth is that if you sit down and do the math as she did and work backwards and say, okay, if my goal is to move out of my parents' apartment in about two years, how much do I have to save? How much do I make? Um, I might get a raise. COVID happened. So it made her lifestyle a lot less expensive because she didn't have social pressure to go out as much, even though she had planned to be living with us anyway. She was just so proud of herself. She was so proud of herself. And I was just so happy for her. Take us down memory lane and think about your own first home purchase. How did that help you separate from your parents financially? It's interesting that you say that because it happened also in my early 20s. And I think it was a real marker because it wasn't something where you know you played a movie clip. I mean, it wasn't something out of a movies where they just said, okay, you're out of here. You're, you know, you're this age arbitrarily and you're out of here. It was really a family effort. And one thing that I talk about in the book is a family ecosystem. And I think it's really important to say, just as our, you know, Ashley, she lived at home rent-free. We didn't have her paying for groceries. She paid for her own clothing. And if she went out with her friends and that kind of stuff, but we weren't, you know, in a roommate situation where he said, you're going to pay for your cottage cheese and your eggs today or something like that. You know, it was family support and not every, and I want to be clear, not every family can do that. Not every child has that opportunity depending on where their job is and so on. But when I moved out, I really did have my family support. It wasn't as clean cut as Ashley. I did it a little younger because of logistics because my parents were in suburban New Jersey. So I had been commuting to a job my first job at CNBC. And I wanted to be in New York City with my friends. So I wanted to move a little bit faster. So the apartment that I purchased, number one was even on a relative basis, less expensive than the one that Ashley purchased. It was, you know, very low floor, you know, back of the building studio versus she's in a little bit nicer apartment. I did have family support that sort of leveled off. So what Ashley really did, which is amazing, is she had a high enough paying job and was able to do the math such that we don't pay a penny towards her ongoing expenses. There's no monthly subsidizing check. I did have that, that leveled off gradually. And I want to be clear about that, that I did have a father and a mother. My mother's no longer with us, that there was a plan. There was an exit strategy and it leveled off. You know, I think it was a few months, no more than a year where there was a little bit of, of extra help getting me, you know, into that apartment and giving, giving me a little bit of extra support. But with that support, I was on that path and that was very helpful. But having that independence, sometimes you need that because it, and again, I want to emphasize family support was there temporarily with an exit strategy because you get used to a separate lifestyle, a separate financial lifestyle where you're 
your groceries don't appear in your refrigerator unless you go out and get them. You will not have paper towels unless you go out and pay for them. And that may sound trivial and there may be some eyes rolling, but I'll tell you, I remember back in college when, you know, freshman year, you're in a dorm and you know, the toilet paper is just kind of there, right? Everything's there and there's cleaning supplies there. And someone else, by the way, is cleaning the communal. It's communal, but it was cleaning the, the bathroom. You move into an off-campus apartment, even in college, and you suddenly have to buy every tissue box, every everything that goes into that apartment. And that's a good life lesson for a lot of people that things don't just appear. And it's the same thing where I think even if you are gradually you know, pulling away support, but initially giving some subsidy to your adult children, if that's right for them, and if there's an understanding and a plan and a goal and a timeline, that can be incredibly productive and incredibly good for self-esteem because you're saying to them, we believe in you. We know the math doesn't work short term and we're going to be there to help you. But we also believe in you that you are going to prioritize being financially separate from us. And of course, it's also important to let your kids know if there's a real emergency, you're going to be there for them just like they will be there for you. And that's another important part of the book that things can reverse. We learned that in, in COVID. Sometimes kids have to be there financially for their parents. I want to get back to this idea of what we should and shouldn't subsidize, what kind of support we should give. But before we do, you know, it occurs to me that children evolve to adults in many different ways. They evolve emotionally, intellectually. Why focus on finances specifically? Well, because that's an area that I write about as a journalist, Jordan. I mean, look, that's what I started my career as. And by the way, it's interesting that I did have this career as a financial journalist that came about. And I also talk about this in the book because my father, who is the most wonderful, giving and generous man on the planet, I think. And he's just so wonderful and so supportive of ever. And I'm going to cry again, Jordan. You know, he, I joke about it, but he always wanted me to work on Wall Street. He felt that I should be a research analyst because many skills of journalism are very similar to, you know, researching equities and so on. And it would have been a far more lucrative career. And so financial journalism was our compromise because I said, I'm very interested in telling stories and sharing with people. And I love interviewing people and hearing about the world and, and discovering things and then sharing it. And so our compromise was one summer in college that he would subsidize my housing while I did an internship in journalism, but the condition was that it had to be in business journalism so that I would learn about the financial market. So I would learn about money and how our financial systems work. And it was, it was a wonderful experience at CNN. I worked on overnights. I was an intern for people like Maria Bartiromo. I met Stuart Varney there as well. Lots of incredible people and learned so much. So that's why finance is just my personal area of interest. I also did find a lot of white space. I mean, I myself found um, a struggle when my older kids, and I should say, by the way, Ashley, who's 25 and Bradley, who's 22 are my stepchildren. They have a wonderful mother who um, lives in another state. They grew up with my husband and I in New York city. And I was struggling because I knew so much on paper from this career in journalism. I also um, became a certified financial planner in 2017. So I knew the information on paper, but as parents of any teen or young 20-something know, knowing that, for example, in this case, they should open up a Roth IRA because they're both doing great. They had income. You know, these are good kids. And actually getting them to open a Roth IRA, put money in there and put it into an investment that was thought out is a whole other thing. And I was really struggling. 
And I was doing everything I could for them. I was, you know, giving them the name of a broker at my my investment company. I was saying, well, I'll sit with you and we can do it. You know, there's this other company if you want to do it through an app and there's this way to do it. And they're like, yes, sure. Yes, we agree. We'll do it. And the deadlines are coming up and it just wasn't happening. And that's when it occurred to me that knowing what to do on paper in terms of the facts is not the same as being able to persuade and incentivize and get your young adult children to actually do what's in their financial interest in the timeline that will be to their best advantage because time does matter. And I struggled with that. I mean, should you let your kid, for example, put money into the 401k account and not invest it if they didn't bother? Or do you get in there, get their password and just get the money into something, you know, rather than let it sit to prove a point and let them be independent? Because time can can go by and the money is not invested in. And it's a tricky thing for parents to decide how much to interfere and sort of keep lifting them up to their benefit if it doesn't, quote, teach them a lesson. You know, what lessons are worth teaching versus the cost to their future in, in their financial future, I should say. You look at this idea of failure to launch through a few different lenses. One of the lenses is incredibly intuitive, right? We are educating our kids so they can be successful adults. But fairly early on in the book, you do mention another lens, which is slightly counterintuitive. You say that failing to launch your children is actually risking your own financial future. Tell us about that. This is the real pain point of the book. And this was the real urgency that I felt when I was putting it together, especially with what happened with COVID. What we have to understand is that if our children do not have the confidence and the competence to run their own financial lives, we as parents are in a very tough position because so many of us will then risk our own finances and go into our own bank accounts, very often our own retirement accounts to help those children. Sometimes the children are sort of aware, but many times they don't know how frail our own finances might be. So many Americans are not necessarily in the place they want to be for their own retirement. And then they're making it even more precarious because they're subsidizing their children. I don't know that the children really understand how not only that hurts the parents, but it helps, it hurts the entire family ecosystem because then what happens is you have this really painful cycle where those children, often at the point where they have their own children, are going to be in a very tough position where they are now going to have to help you. And no parent wants that. When you tell a parent, if you subsidize your children to a point where you are hurting your own financial outlook, your own financial security, and that in turn will make them have to have to subsidize you in the future. That's where you get their attention because nobody wants their own. If you love your children so much that you are giving them money that you shouldn't be giving them from a financial, from your own, just talking about your own financial health, forget about, you know, whether it's right or wrong, whatever, and whether it's helping them grow, just math. You're giving them money that you need to retire and you're taking it and you're subsidizing your children in the present and jeopardizing your future. If you tell a parent, play out the scenario when you're X years old, do you want your children to have to go into your grandchild's college savings, you, their, their emergency funds, go into debt to help you? That is a call to action. That is a big wake up call. This discussion really reminds me of a point you also make early in the book about how 
we as parents get in our own way. I'm going to quote you here. You say, sometimes we, the parents, are the obstacles keeping them from truly growing into their own and moving away from dependence on us. Tell us a little bit about helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting. What's the difference between the two? Well, it starts with helicopter parenting, which is when you're sort of hovering over your children and kind of, you know, always there, you know, hanging over. Snowplow is when, let's say they're in college and you're just like, like, you know, plowing the way forward. Maybe you're, you know, you hear stories about people getting involved and calling their kids college professors and negotiating grades or, you know, getting them a better dorm room or they don't, you know, you're just meddling in in college and so on. And then it can move into even what I like to refer to as concierge parenting, where money is often the tool, just like at a hotel, your concierge will make things better by, you know, basically using money to get you the, you know, what you need. It just becomes a vicious cycle and it's not healthy for anyone because the tr- it's as simple as, you know, if your kid's crying and then in the grocery store at age five and you just buy them the toy because it's easier and it is easier in the moment, but the long-term ramifications and the message you're sending can be very expensive. But the truth is we as parents do, we, we as a generation, and I'm speaking as a Gen Xer, we have invested so much financially, but also emotionally in our children. We have them, I mean, I think in some ways COVID was a wake-up call in terms of the overscheduling, at least for my for my family. But we have had them so overscheduled, so overprogrammed. I used to, any day that my youngest, who's now 14, and so he was 12 at the start of the pandemic, any day or week that he did not have school, he had scheduled activities that we paid for in pretty much every case. And we're used to that. And so we've put so much into these children that that's our whole identity. We are so-and-so's mom or dad. How do we suddenly let go? Well, we don't, you know, we're still there. And, and we also connect with them in a much more continuous way than previous generations, simply because of technology. It used to be, you drop a kid off at college and they go down the phone to a pay phone. They go down the hall to a pay phone and can call you every so often. They didn't have, we didn't have cell phones when I was in college. And so now you drop a kid off and they're texting you two minutes later. Oh, how do I, you know, do my clothing? How do I do my wash? I don't know what, what detergent do I buy? What do I do with this? You know, there's a constant, there's a continuous link. So we don't have this natural separation where the parents are gone. They're only themselves and they are with their friends and their roommates and they're immersed in college. And I've seen this, look, my, my, um, his son who's 22, he goes to school in New York city where we live and he is in our home several times a week and he's in college. And obviously if it was in a different city, that wouldn't be true, but it's very fluid. There's not as much separation with, okay, you were in college, you're there now because we're talking to them all the time now. And so we're much more involved and it's really true. I, I this saying, people say you're only as happy as your unhappiest kid, <laughs> even when they're adults, but it's true. And now we know we didn't know all the time because we didn't have this consistent, constant communication as we do now. Now we're getting the play-by-play of their whole lives, whatever stage they're in. They can tell us if they had a bad day at work. They can tell us if they're worried about you know, their rent or whatever it may be. And we are just a lot more involved. I feel like our generation is definitely facing a different environment per se than our parents faced while raising us. You mentioned technology and us being more involved in our child's lives than ever. There are also social and political changes, especially in the last few years, which have affected the way kids launch from their parents' households. 
Talk about some of the big things that have changed how children now leave their childhood home and establish themselves. I love that you brought this up. A lot of the beginning of the book is really dedicated to things that have factually changed. And, you know, people poo-poo saying, oh, it was different when we were younger. Well, it really was. And some of the things are good. For example, there's a lot of good that came from what's called Obamacare. The fact that we can keep our children on health insurance till they're 26, that's great on the surface. But psychologically, it has extended our perception of adulthood and it has extended our financial ties to our children. So much good has come from this. It's a good thing overall. It allows our children to have a little more breathing room when it comes to getting a job because the way our healthcare system in the United States is set up, it is largely tied to having a corporate job. So it gives them some freedom to have some time to figure it out and not be boxed into something that they're going to be miserable in. Um, However, it also gives companies more wiggle room to not give them that security, to not give them that corporate job, or to push them to be on their parents' health insurance. That's something that happened to our oldest, the company she works for, a consulting company, and they encourage their, their young recruits, oh, if you could stay on your parents' insurance, you should do that, Right. It also allows companies to sometimes take advantage of young people because they can hire them in these sort of gig jobs or contract jobs and not give them the benefits that really can set them up for a successful adult life to have that security, not just health insurance, but other corporate benefits that are really nice to have and help establish your own separate adult household. So it's a little bit complicated, but things really have become tougher to separate financially. And that doesn't even include, this is the elephant in the room, I should have said initially, the cost of college. I mean, it's 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 horrible for our children. It is catastrophic for parents. I mean, we talked earlier about the fact that parents' finances can be hit because we're helping our children so much. Well, guess where parents are helping their children a lot and draining their finances? College right? People do not want, we hear so many horrible stories that there's nothing we want more than to give our children the gift of graduating without debt. So parents are often the ones either taking on parent loans, which are often not as regulated and at higher rates. They are not as easily forgivable, not that it's easy to forgive any student debt, but they are tougher. And we also can drain our own retirement accounts or put less money into our retirement accounts because we're so busy ideally, you know, funding a tax advantaged college account, like a 529, but sometimes not. And that leaves parents vulnerable because we're so busy making sure our children don't have these really unfair burdens of education that, and that's a whole tangent, but I am very angry as a parent of uh, a college, uh, a college kid right now, one graduate, and then one on the way. I think the biggest tragedy is the sheer dollar cost of going to college. I don't think it should cost what it, I, I mean, everyone can look up the numbers of what college costs these days. And I know not everyone pays the quote full retail price. Um, Ron Lieber, by the way, wrote a great book about this called The Price You Pay for College. I think that's the exact, I'm not sure, check out the exact, but Ron Lieber, who's in my book, by the way, wrote a great book about, about the cost of college, but it's, it's just not a, the right system. I think there's no accountability among the colleges for why the tuition is what it is, especially when they're not necessarily delivering the product that they promise. We're talking about the differences this generation is facing compared to what our generation faced. You were mentioning college debt. The other is COVID-19. Talk about the COVID-19 boomerang and how that's changed expectations of where young people live. 
Well, first of all, I think that when, so again, as a Gen Xer, there was a stigma to being at home. And one of the reasons that I think I moved out sooner than my oldest child was because there was this pressure to not be living with mommy and daddy, right? There was this pressure to launch. And so I was eager to get out. What happened, it was happening even before COVID-19, to be honest, but COVID-19 was, you know, really took any stigma out of moving home and living with your parents. And again, a lot of that is, is positive because there's a lot to be gained by taking a moment, you know, taking a season of your life, building a financial nest egg, especially after college. And then you have something like a down payment or enough backstop emergency fund. If you're going to be in a rental situation that you have some financial security of your own, because I don't see how you do it, frankly, if you move right into a situation where you're covering all of your, I just, I don't have any magic formula for getting a nest egg and having a financial emergency fund out of school if you don't live rent-free with parents or some other situation. But COVID-19 took a lot of stigma out of the idea of moving home because it wasn't always for economic reasons. It was for family support. It was for health reasons. It was just because it made logistical sense. People just wanted to be with the people that they love. And I think it was really a wonderful time in that way. I also think that it gave parents and young adult children an opportunity to get to know each other in a non a non-financial emergency situation let's say some people of course there was a financial reason to move home but many moved home just because they wanted to be home and it was safer to be home they wanted to take care of their parents and vice versa so there wasn't that stigma but you're moving home at a time when you wouldn't normally be home your parents are seeing you as the young adults that you are over time. Initially, I think it was, there was a lot of weirdness the first week or two, but you know, you had to kind of figure out and you get to know each other in different ways and conversations start happening just because life went on. It was more than, remember that 15 days to stop the spread? Yes. Remember that <laughs> 15 a, days did, to stop the spread? Memory, yes. Yes, exactly. And they had the little signs and everything. Right. So, you know, after the 15 days and you kind of settle in, you get to know each other in a very different ways. You hear about, you know, kids having, you know, adult kids at like, oh, you know, five o'clock, you know, wine, you know, time, sundown time with their parents. And, and you just get to know each other and you have these conversations that you would have never had because before you were getting ready to go to college, let's say in, in many households or whatever you may have been getting ready to do when you moved out of your home. And now, well, not necessarily peers. And I do talk about the fact that you're their parent, not their friend. And I, for me, you can be friendly and you can be a friend, but you're, you're the parents. You can understand a lot about your parents and a lot about what financial decisions they made along the way and learn about their values and the choices they made. As children, we don't always see that. We just see, I remember at one point we moved when I was about 13 years old to a bigger house. Well, I didn't fully understand why until when I was older and had conversations with my father, I understood that he sort of made a career pivot and had some, you know, good fortune with some investments. And we were able to, you know, I was able to go to private school and I was able to have my college paid for fully and so on. So you learn a lot more about, you know, oh, what was that deal that happened? And, and how did you decide to invest? And who else was involved? And what was the risk? And, and maybe there was a deal that didn't work out. And you start having conversations about all the little financial decisions that were made along the way. I mean, I remember growing up at one point in that new house, my mom had put towels on the windows for a while. And I was like, what's up with that mom? And she was like, you know, she just kind of 
mumbled away. And like, you know, then you find out, well, you know, they were waiting because it's just, you know, they wanted to kind of watch their money. You know, just like there used to be a whole thing where you stretch to buy a house and you don't even buy furniture. You just spend every penny getting the best house you can and, you know, you'll, you'll grow into it. And by the way, that philosophy has now flipped where now people say buy a very affordable house. So you're not stretched, but you just learn about what was going on in your parents' mind in a different way when they share with you looking back in a very different setting. You're not visiting for Thanksgiving. You're together as a family, but as adults. And it's a very different dynamic. And it brought out, it really brought down the walls. I think it created a lot of financial transparency among parents and gave them an opportunity also to see their children in their careers, to see them as professionals, to understand their accomplishments in a different way, because sometimes parents don't fully understand their job. I mean, I have a lovely father-in-law who's a dentist. I am telling you, he does not understand what my husband does for a living. They understand me because there's a book. You can see a book. I get it. She wrote a book. Okay. But their son is a consultant. It is sort of complicated field. And I know he doesn't fully understand it. And we didn't live with them during the pandemic, but there's a lot of that where parents, there's a lot of jobs that exist today that literally did not exist in the past. In fact, like you, do you think do your parents really understand? <laughs> yes, I make my living as a podcaster. That's a little weird to parents, but if they were home with you, it might make more sense. Do you think that all this closeness and this different kind of environment and culture, especially Gen Z, is seeing that they don't look at their parents and say, "Well, you know, we're different than you. You, your generation, Generation X, you were more considered with." material success. You were more worried about the big houses and the nice cars. Maybe they think that for them, they're just not worried about money. They don't, they don't need to worry about the stuff the way you needed to. Do you ever kind of see that in, in young people? I think that's an interesting point. I don't think it's as linear as that. I think you're correct in that the focus on material items is less. We had very much a uniform, for example, when I was in school where we would wear, everyone kind of had the same three or four outfits that we would rotate for school every day. There was a uniformity and a conformity that I don't see as much today. That said, there's still peer pressure. There's still human. There's still a lot of stuff. And, and as much as they may say they're not materialistic, they're also very concerned with their image, with social media, with different things. It's just that the emphasis has shifted. So I think, and 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 also the other thing I want to say is we don't know how they will be in the different life stages, right? Because someone that, and, I, and this is something interesting, I have enormous respect for the FIRE movement, but it's always interesting to see as people evolve through different life stages, how their perspective changes, because you may say you're not materialistic, Okay. And I agree with that. I think many people are not. However, if something, you you still need money because for example, my kids all needed orthodonture. It was five figures for each kid. Okay. So you may say you don't care about money to buy a Prada purse. That doesn't mean you don't need a big amount of money. I mean, we were trying to sell a house in the suburbs during the housing crisis of 2007, 2008, and the septic tank blew and it was $6,000 and cost us a sale. So it cost $6,000 and then another, like, I want to say eight or nine months of carrying this house, right? So we're sinking financially, no pun intended. Um, (laughs) That's just money. And I remember joking with my little sister, like, you know, I would never, for me, you know, I'm not going out and buying the $5,000 Hermes purse. I'm not buying $1,000 boots every day, but here I am. And I have to write these massive checks. It's not fair. 
right? Nobody says, oh my gosh, I love your septic tank, right? So you can say that you're not materialistic, but let me tell you, that doesn't mean you don't need money, especially if you have people you care about that are financially dependent on you, or if you want to make sure that you are not financially dependent on someone else in the future. But I think once you have kids or anyone that is dependent on you, everything, all bets are off because you don't know what they're going to need. I mean, medical expenses, that's, you know, in this country right now, that's a huge issue as well. And you better have resources for that, especially if you are not in a corporate job with really good insurance. So I almost think it's irrelevant that the things that people would buy, like some clothing or something are so small compared to the things that can matter financially in life that you do want to have that financial security and that safety net for. And that's really what matters. And I think we're all human. I don't care what generation you are. Everybody wants to be there for the people that they love. We are talking to Bobby Rebel. She is the host of the Money Tips for Financial Grownups podcast and the founder of grownupgear.com. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Over 30,000 investors across the U.S. are discovering a new way to build wealth. Equity Multiple brings you access to a diverse wealth generation ecosystem with cash-flowing real estate. Starting with just $5,000, you can allocate to professionally manage commercial real estate assets. Sign up in minutes, find investments that fit your strategy, and invest your desired amount through a streamlined, secured platform. Since 2015, Equity Multiple has delivered over $170 million in distributions to investors and 17.4% aggregate net return. Join the thousands of investors nationwide who are building stronger, more diversified portfolios through real estate investing. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investments. All investments involve risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. Again, that is equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Bobby Rebel. She is the author of Launching Financial Grownups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adult Kids Become Everyday Money Smart. Bobby, let's delve into the book here. I think an essential question is how do we as parents draw the line between being financially generous versus stunting our children's growth by doing too much? And you bring up this idea of of the strategic financial boost. Tell us what that is and how we can incorporate that. 
I love that. Thank you so much for asking. I think that, you know, just like when I talked about the fact that my parents helped me get into my first apartment, I think that's really important to understand that there was a strategy to it. They said, okay, we're going to subsidize you, but it's going to be less every month and it's going to end at this point. So it allowed me to get out of the house, but it was very clear that it was ending and it was up to me to make sure that I was ready for it ending. In the book, I talk about, um, I did a wonderful interview with a guy named Jason Pfeiffer um, with Entrepreneur Magazine and his dad, Roy. They were the best. And we talk about the fact that Jason had this opportunity to move to New York City to take a really great job that he really wanted. And without his parents' help, it would have been, maybe he would have done it, but without his parents' help, it would have been a lot tougher. And they had the resources to help him make this move. Moving is expensive and they wanted to help. And again, very clear, it did not hurt their financial security. And it was so meaningful to him. And to this day, he talks about it and remembers it. And it was truly helpful. And it helped him take that opportunity. What if someone, you know, so if you can help your kid get to the next level in their career or something like that, through a one-time strategic financial boost, again, that doesn't hurt your financial security as the Pfeiffer family did, I think that's a wonderful gift to your children. What you don't want to say is, okay, move to New York and pick whatever apartment you want and we'll just pay the landlord directly. You don't even worry about money. You go have fun. You don't want to do that, right? You want them to understand that this is a short-term thing just to get them started and then to walk away. And also you want them to understand that they are in a very privileged position to be able to do this. This is not the norm. Not every family can do this. In fact, very few families can do this. And so it's important that they have an understanding of the gift that they've been given and that they understand that and that they hopefully will pay it forward in some way in the future. You mentioned that few families can do this. And it reminds me, what role does parental ego play in this whole thing? Because I think on some level, we as parents We kind of want to be able to say, hey, we're doing well. We can pay for our kids so that they don't struggle. Is that getting in our way? I Oh, such a great point. I think that it's a really fine line that parents have to watch because the truth is keeping our children financially tied to us is a way of us not letting go. It goes back to the helicopter parenting. We want to be involved. We want them to call. We want to keep that connection. And it's very important to us because we have invested and in many many cases, almost over-invested in our ties to our children. We have such a strong identity tied to being the parent of our child that by, you know, I I was at an event uh, a few days ago with parents who, and I kept my mouth shut, but they send their child a check every month. And I kind of said, okay. I said, well, for how long? And they're like, well, forever. And I was like, why? They're like, well, we love her and we just want her to be comfortable. And I was like, okay, but what if something ever happens to you? They're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, okay. And, you know, I think that's nice and it's well-intentioned, but at a certain point, it would be better if she adjusted to live within her means or if they maybe structured it. You know, there are things to do, and this gets into a very select group and a very privileged group where, you know, if you do want to permanently subsidize your children in some way, rather than just sending them arbitrary checks, maybe you set up something through a third party, an investment fund, a trust fund of some sort, and you have them understand what's going on, have them be allowed to take a certain small percentage out every month and teach them about investing so that they will eventually be able to manage that money as an investment and keep it secure going forward should something happen to you. In other words, own the fact that you're going to subsidize them. And I'm not necessarily agreeing with it, but own that fact 
set it up with a third party money manager as you know a trust fund and then have it be deliberate have them be educated have them understand this is the money this you have to keep this secure this is your future this is not something to be taken more than a very small amount here's an expert that's going to advise you on how to take care of this so that you have intergenerational wealth and you have a protection and a safety net for that child. Because otherwise you haven't taught that child how to live within their means. You haven't really taught them how to function as a financial grown-up, And that's not fair to the child and it's not going to serve you well. And it's not going to serve them well when you're not there. So I think it's important to just have that awareness if you can't break away. Um, but look, there's nothing wrong with helping your children. I think it's very hard to tell children, to tell parents not to. And I know my parents certainly were supportive of me when I needed it. And I know that they're very generous as well. So I don't want to tell parents not to be there for their children. I want them to tell, to make sure their children will be okay if they're not there and their children know how to take care of themselves financially and know how money works, understand what their life costs. A lot of us don't really understand how expensive our own lives are. I was so proud of my stepdaughter, Ashley, when you know she moved out and she had set up a full understanding of what everything cost, not just ongoing costs, but what it was going to cost to set up that apartment that she bought and down to everything. And she shopped around and she sourced and she bought certain things from one vendor, certain retailer, I should say, certain things from different retailers. She had the coupons going because there's so many items that go, go into an apartment when you're first setting it up, right? And we let her do that. I mean, I think we bought her the bed but that was it. And she covered all of her closing costs and everything. But just having that understanding of what your own life costs is something that you're taking away from your children. If you just kind of like pay everything and let them just live, they need to see the bills. They need to, to know when the bill is due and, and ideally have it automated. So it's never late and all that stuff. But if they don't, if you don't let them pay it, how will they know how to pay it? Right. In fact, you go as far as titling a section of your book, Be Their Coach, Not Their Teammate, it points to this idea of why maybe being friends with your kid, quote unquote, is not necessarily the best tack. Are we afraid of disappointing them? So afraid. I'm still afraid. It's so hard. But, you know, I'll give you an example that just happened that's not in the book. So Bradley, who is a senior at NYU at the Tisch School of Arts, I probably botched the exact name there. I'm so proud of him. So he's working on a movie for his senior thesis. And he had a budget in mind and it beyond what the school allocates. And by the way, there's a couple other kids involved too, a couple other students. And he came to us and my husband and I, and, and told us about it. And he sort of said, well, it's going to cost this much. And I was, I, my husband's the best. And we just kind of sat there mm-hmm. and I feel like he was kind of hoping we'd go, okay, we'll write you a check. Cause it was a, it was a big check, but we could have, we could have written it. It was a big check, but we could have written it. But we just sat there. We said, well, how are you going to raise the money? Silence. And he went back and he thought about it. And now he's got an Indiegogo campaign. If anyone wants to look it up, it's called Meatball Town. Feel free to send him 25 bucks. And he is raising money. He had, you know, did we, did I lend him, you know, my ring light to record his video pitch? Sure. Did I, you know, share it on, on my Facebook page? Sure. Did we give a, a, we gave a small donation? We gave a, a donation. Sure. But you know, it's on him. We just let him, we just kind of sat there going, well, what are you going to do? You know, well, and when he 
you know, had some ideas, we, we discussed them with him. You know, we said, well, in your presentation, you know, when you say this, make sure you explain why NYU isn't paying for this part of it. You know, we, we coached him, but we let him figure it out. I love this discussion of Bradley's project because it helps us get more granular, which I think is really helpful in some of these conversations. Let's look at a few specific topics, college and college debt. How do we draw the line as parents and how much to help or not help? And specifically, how much do we step in even before they decide to go to college and start having them consider the economics before they even decide on that quote unquote dream school? I think what's really wonderful these days is that there are so many variables and there's a lot of discussion going on about other options besides a four-year college. Um, that wasn't always true. I wish I could have had a gap year. I think it's not a bad thing for kids. And it's, again, just like the stigma of living at home has gone away. I think the quote, stigma of not going right from college, right from high school into college for kids that are going to go to a four-year college has changed. And I think there's a lot of new discussions about community college. And there's a lot of discussions about these courses that give you expertise in technology are also important. So have discussions with your kids. And I would spend a lot more time listening than talking. Tori Dunlap, who is from the, her, her website is called her first 100 K and she's got a lot of wonderful things to say in the book and otherwise also on her various platforms, but she talks about the importance of just listening and understanding that even if you succeed in convincing your kid to do something that they don't really want to do, you haven't succeeded. I mean, there's a million stories out there of kids that were forced to become X, Y, and Z, you know, lawyers, doctors, whatever. And then midlife they start doing what they really wanted to do, right? They do what their parents said to do. And then at the end of the day, they're not happy and they change. And 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 by the way, ironically, often the safe job the parents want to do is not always the, the safe job that you think it's going to be because things change. And a lot of the jobs that you know didn't exist for us can be very lucrative. So it's important to listen to your kids. And as a coach, as you say, give them guidance, have them spell out. So in the case of Ashley that we talked about earlier, when she was going off to college, she was very interested in being a teacher. And in fact, she was accepted at the teacher's college. She went to Indiana at the School of Education, whatever. And forgive me, I don't know the exact name. And we were having these ongoing discussions about the kind of lifestyle that she wanted. And she loves to go to Disney and she loves to go on vacation and she wants a puppy and she wants to live in New York City at the time and so on. And she wants, as we know, to own her own apartment. She has a lot of aspirations. And again, she's not out buying fancy designer purses. She's not a materialistic kid, but she does want to have financial freedom. She doesn't want to feel like she can't do what she wants to do because she doesn't have money in her bank account. And she, through these discussions, decided that it made more sense for her to transfer to the School of Informatics and to become a technology consultant, which has been incredibly lucrative. I mean, she, at age 25, makes a very, very good salary. I mean, I'm so proud of her. And that is her own doing. So it's us coaching her to come to her own decisions. And I think it's really important that we let kids do what they're going to do with guidance, with understanding of how does this play out? Okay, you want to start your own company. Well, what are the parameters? What is it going to cost? Do you have a business plan? How much are you going to spend on marketing? Are you going to hire other people? Where are you going to get funding? Because we're not writing a check. We'll support you. You know, we'll do what we can to some degree, but we're not draining our retirement account to fund this business idea. Exactly how is it going to work? And if you're going to live at home, for what time period? What? How will you contribute at home when you're home? 
How will this work? Where's your business going to be based? And do what we can to support them as a coach, as you say, but we're not necessarily going to be a teammate. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And But let them know that you're there cheering them on all the way. Let's pivot from college and college debt choices to career. You talked about listening to our children, yet your own story, your dad was pretty you know, clear on what he thought you should do when it came to your career. Yeah, but he listened. I mean, at the end of the day, I, to my point, he wasn't going to change my mind. He got me to pivot though. I did choose business journalism versus becoming a local news reporter. So I did hear him. He said, you really want to, you know, I did want to get married and have a family. That was something very important to me. And if I had been a local news reporter, I would have been traveling from, this is, you know, in the 90s. I would have been traveling from small town to small town, trying to move up through various markets. And I wanted to live in New York City. And I wanted to you know, have a family, as I said. I wanted to be in one place. I really didn't want to move every two years, which, is, which was the general career path to be a local news reporter. And that's if you're successful, remember, it's a big risk. That's, that's the, if you're super successful, you'll get to a major city at some point in your life. And even then, it's very precarious. With business news, you were always going to be in a major city, generally New York City. So he was successful in that he had me make that compromise. And he also was successful in that he gave me, by pushing me to business news, he also gave me the opportunity that should I have changed my mind, I had different opportunities. I could have made a switch to Wall Street much more easily. I did become a certified financial planner and could at some point, if I wanted to, right now I don't have a practice, I could open a practice. It makes sense for me to be in finance. And it also gave me the opportunity to meet incredible people in the business world, which has just been so interesting and exciting in terms of life experiences. I've met so many successful business leaders and so on. And and so I, I did listen to him and I think he did listen to me. Does that make sense? It it does make sense. And I think, again, this gets back to this idea of coaching, which it sounds like you had a very good relationship in which he wasn't trying to be your friend. He was giving you some of the hard messages, but he was able to do it in, in a, such a way that he listened to you and your wants and your needs. And I think it's a very good model for what you talk about in the book. Let's move on to some of the encore parenting subjects. <laughs> We've got them through the you know high school years. We've got them through college. They have a career chosen and now they've found a job. Talk about some of the things we can help our children with during that first job and while they're getting that first paycheck. Because I think there's some unique issues there to, for them to learn. Well, I think the overarching theme that we need to remember is if they say they got it, do not believe them. <laughs> do not assume. <laughs> okay. The problem is that, you know, so much is available on the web that I remember, I still remember her name was Suzanne, the HR person at CNBC, which was my very first full-time corporate job with benefits, sat me down and said, I'm not giving you a choice. They were owned by General Electric at the time. She said, you have very good benefits. Your 401k has it. This is how well I remember it. You're, you have a 6% dollar for dollar match and I will be maxing you out in your 401k. Not an option. And I was like, what's a 401k? So we don't have those meetings, certainly in this remote world that we're in right now. There's nobody at the company that's going to be an advocate for your kid that's going to go through their benefits and be like, here's what we're doing, kid. We're going to sign you up for this and let's go through your health insurance and let's make sure you understand this. Because even my kids, um, 
struggled, you know, I mean, the discussions we had, oh my goodness. I mean, health insurance, Ashley, she knows everything she has. She is so smart and she really prepared and she understands and she reads, but still it was very hard to figure out what was the best decision for her health insurance. She ended up going with an HSA because her company had a $750 gift that came, that came with it. They, they give you $750 into your HSA fund. And I'm getting very granular because I want parents to get that granular. I want you to sit there with the computer open with your kid. I don't want you to say, oh, did you choose a health insurance plan? And they go, yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mom. No, sit there with them. Okay. Because these are things that are going to have very long impacts. They might be a year lock-in with health insurance with something like a 401k. In theory, you can, I mean, you can, it's not in theory. You can change it pretty much at any moment. That said, it also can go ignored for many years. It can go ignored for decades. So if your kid says they're good with the 401k, make sure they show you what they're doing. And I say this from my own experience because darling Ashley, who knows everything, and she does, I'm not being sarcastic. She knows, she fully gets it. She put the money in the 401k. She fought me on it, but she put in the max to get the, the maximum match from her company, which was a lot at the time. When she's first starting, it was a lot. She's doing that high deductible plan. She's So much is coming out of her paycheck and she wants those money. She wants those dollars to save for that apartment. So she's really trying to keep her after tax or take home pay high. She's putting in that 401k money and it wasn't invested, Jordan. It was not invested. What do you mean? It's it invested was just in a 401k. In what there. are you talking about? Right. You have to pick the mutual fund. And I remember very clearly she was running out to meet friends or something. And I said, you're not, we need to pick a mutual fund. She was like, oh, just pick one. I said, no, you have to just sit, you, know, you open it up with their password. Okay. And you make sure that they choose something. And if they don't have the time, just choose a diversified index fund, something, something reasonable. I said to her, okay, I want you to press the button on this one. I want you to do it. You know, I I really try to do that where you sit with them, but have them drive, you know, press the keyboard, press the actual keys. And she said, okay, I did it. And threw the computer kind of at me. And I was like, wait, let me look. And she had not, she had picked like it was the same company. It was like, you know, the let's call it the American Mutual Fund Company. I'm just making up a name. And she picked the fixed income fund instead of the diversified broad stock index fund that I told her to because she just saw the holding company for the mutual fund, not the individual mutual fund. So she said, but you said pick the American Mutual Fund Company. I said, but there's eight funds from that company. And you picked one that will not serve you well over the next 40 years if you forget to look at this, right? You have to assume they never open it again. So even if they walk out the door, you're still logged in, just fix it. Don't stand on ceremony. Make sure that they are invested in the right fund. You can circle back with them later, take a screenshot and show them where they're invested so they understand and be in touch with them about that. I also would go in and automatically, ideally with them sitting there, but if they're not doing it, do it for them because the consequences are serious and put in that automatic you know, 1% every whatever time period, every six months where they're putting a little bit more away than they originally said, they probably won't notice. If they do, you can always change it, but have their back. You know, don't stand on ceremony when it comes to long-term financial stuff. It's really important um, that you not kind of make a point with these things. There'll be other opportunities to make a point. 
I want to end this conversation where I started it. Let's go back to May 25th, 2021. <laughs> Ashley is signing on the dotted line in the 500 places you have to, to get a mortgage. Are you done? I mean, is that the pinnacle? Is your no. job as parent over financially? It's never over. <laughs> it's never over. I think it's really important to constantly have conversations. And one of the hardest things for me as a child, because we're, we're parents, but we're also children to our parents, you know, mortality is really hard. And talking to your parents, I have a father who's 81 years old and I, there's a big emotional aspect to these family relationships. And I find myself not wanting to talk to him about his estate planning, but you have to. And it was really hard for me in the reverse also to tell my kids. I mean, the older ones, they have wills now. They're the only ones their age. They joke about it. I mean, it's really kind of funny, but they're very proud of it. They think it's hysterical and yet awesome. They're really proud of it. And they have, you know, the healthcare directives, but it's good because I think they understand them now. I don't think we're ever going to use them, but I love that they understand that stuff. And it's really important. And it's important for me as a parent and a child to learn that if I'm pushing my kids to have these discussions, I have to accept my father wanting to have these discussions with me. And that's really hard. It's hard, you know, we have to appreciate both ways that I kind of want to just cover my ears and I want my dad to be there forever. So I, I just don't want to hear about, you know, his estate planning and anything that I may be responsible for, or my siblings might be responsible in the future. And I can't imagine a world where I would have to take care of him and certainly, you know, not financially, but I'm proud that I know enough about money that I could step up for him if I wanted to. And I think I'm going to get, you're making me teary, but I mean, I think it's all about love and family love. And, you know, I, I talk about the family ecosystem, but it's really about, you know, money is just a thing, but it's connecting us. And it's a way for us to show how much we love our family and be there for all generations, your parents and your children and your grandchildren and all of that, and make sure that we are there to take care of each other because ultimately that's what we want. We're always going to be their parents. And it's important to know that you let your kids know that you have confidence in them, that they're not going to need you to step in and support them, but things happen and you will be there to support them. And you also want them to be confident that they can step in if you need their help too. And that it's really about everybody supporting everybody in the different generations. Well, Bobby, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I think this conversation is so important. These, these talks we have with our children about launching them financially are difficult. And while none of us would doubt that we have to educate our kids, we have to show them how to be in the world. When it comes to money, there's this extra layer of fear, fear that they won't reach their own goals, fear that we're going to have to revisit our own financial trauma from our lives. It seems like there's so much that gets in the way. We're lucky to have your book to help walk us through this difficult process. I wanted to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next with your life and where can we find you? First and foremost, when does the book launch? The book launches March 22nd, 2022. I hope everybody um, can benefit from the book. It's really a labor of love. I'm like in tears if people, I don't know if people are watching the video or not, but I'm kind of holding back tears at this point because it's really emotional when I think about it. And so much love went into this book and I really love my kids and I love my parents. My mother's no longer with us, but I just hope it helps generations have really productive conversations about money and 
really be there to support each other. For me, I mean, I'm, I want to get out there and speak to people about this. So if somebody, if I can be part of an event that you're having or um, a panel discussion, or even if you're having a book club and you want me to drop in, be in touch. You can get lots of information about me right at my website, which is just my name, bobbyrebell.com. And um, thank you so much for having me. It has been my pleasure. The book is Launching Financial Grownups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adult Kids Become Everyday Money Smart. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Bobby Rebel. That's a wrap. Thank you. Awesome. I'm like crying. Good. I'm literally crying. Good. But that's because you care about this stuff. Like nothing is better than to interview someone who's passionate enough about what they're talking about that it brings tears to their eyes. So to me, yeah. that's, that's awesome. It means that you, um, this is not something you just wrote. It's something you feel deeply inside and that, uh, that translates. And I think it very much translates in the book. Um, your stories, getting into your own personal history, beginning with your own children and tying that into this very important topic, I think plays really well. And um, it makes it much more interesting and exciting and engaging. So I think you did a great job. I, I like the book. I read it. I read it like in two days. Like, really? Yeah. Because I, well, I read oh, fast wow. because I want to be ready to. You have to. Yeah. You. But I, I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, Thank you. I think it was well organized. I think you uh, you did a great job. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's just a little hard because also, you know, my dad, um, he's retired now, but he's incredibly successful and incredibly generous. And I had to always be honest about that. I mean, one of the hardest things, you know, it's interesting. He's now called me a few times been like, I am proud of you. You know that. <laughs> I. It's hard to put your stuff out there. So as I was saying, I've kind of dealing with this too. Like you really bear yourself open when you start telling your own family stories and they are so important and essential to who you are and what you felt but by by opening yourself up yeah you you also are going to get people who say oh you're just from privilege or oh you know you you that doesn't sound bad at all look what i had and and it's really hard to make something that's written for everyone in such a way that you can say look I understand that I came from this place, but I still want to use those valuable lessons and have meaning from them, right? Like, yes, I didn't struggle on certain things and I did on others, but that doesn't mean that everything I've accrued from my own you know, childhood, plus everything I've learned as a financial reporter and someone who's thought deeply about these things, I can still understand or empathize or you know, be helpful in situations that I myself didn't go through. Yeah. Well, and also I think, I think it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see my father's reaction to things like, you know, the fact that I talk about cars and how people should have skin in the game, but sometimes kids aren't interested in cars. I mean, my dad, he just bought a car when I got a driver's license. I really didn't care. I didn't, I, I did not want a car. I didn't think about it. I still don't even know anything about cars. I mean, Royers once sent me to Detroit. I told them I didn't understand cars. They made me go to the auto <laughs> show. They never sent me again. I'm not a car That's person. Funny. I have a black car right now. It's black. It's an SUV. I think it's a Ford. Um, <laughs> That's all I, you know, it's, it's terrifying to have me drive, but anyway, but so, you know, my dad bought me a car outright and I'm sitting here writing this book where I talk about kids have to have skin in the game. Well, how do you give a kid skin in the game when they're indifferent about a car? 
right? Yeah. My own kids, they don't even have driver's licenses because they don't care. Yeah. So this is where it gets tricky because the truth is for a lot of parents, giving a kid a car is really for the parents because then they don't have to drive yes. the kid where yes. they're going. When my so, son turned 16, it was a big deal. Yeah, Exactly. And did he really want a car? Oh yes, he did personally. Oh, he's, so he cares. My so son, then you my can son, make him have skin of the my game. My son Sorry. is an aberration because he loves cars, and he was okay. He wanted to get into a car as fast as he could so he could go everywhere he wanted to go. But he's different than your typical. My my daughter, the fourteen year old, is more like, yeah, I'll learn if I have to type thing. <laughs> right, and that's that's another generational thing. We didn't touch on that in the main interview, but yeah. it, it is. Kids are not as car centric because they used to be trapped at home not connected to their friends. And now they still might be if they don't have a car, but they feel it. They feel connected because they have, they have a phone. So they're a lot, they're not really isolated. They don't need the phones and there's Uber and Lyft and all of that stuff. So it's not as urgent and there's a, you know, not it's, it's tougher to use the carrot and stick with a car the way it used to be. But yeah, I mean, they just bought me a car and I was like, okay, I guess I'll have to drive my brother and sister around, but they're buying, they bought me a car. It wasn't like a privilege and a present for them. It was like, you know, let's make our life easier. Now we don't have to be carpool mom and dad, and she can do all the driving of her younger brother and sister. So, you know, it's sort of, I'm telling parents to make sure your kids have skin in the game. Tough to do when they're like, well, I don't really want the car. Never mind. (laughs) So it's tricky. It's tricky, but yeah. 